Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. It's great to be with you, and um, I'm excited to be uh, sharing on this topic this morning. And uh, we are continuing uh, the series that we've been in all year. Pretty ambitious to do a year-long series at a church, but you guys have hung in there. This has been great. Uh, so the first part of the year, we were talking about the inward journey. What was the inward journey all about? Any ideas? Healing and restoration. That's a great way to sum it up. And we use that language a lot here at New Day. So kind of the inward work that God does in our lives and in our hearts. Uh, really to kind of get to know God more, but to also kind of deal with those things that are in our hearts, right? So we want to get rid of all of those you know, there's those lists in the New Testament, right, of good things and bad things, and some of the lists talk about things like envy and pride and gossip and all those things, and we want to get rid of all that stuff, and we want to enter more fully into the good stuff. So the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that's the inward journey is working through all of that. And then the middle part of the year, we talked about the upward journey, which is our relationship with God. And you remember that we spent a lot of time in the summer talking about the attributes of God. So his holiness, his divine nature. What is God like? And the reason we do that, and we spent so much time on that, is because there's a principle at work, which is whatever you really, really focus on and pay attention to, whatever you behold, you become more like that thing. Right? So the more that you fixate on something, the more you think about that thing, the more it shapes you. And so we want to be intentionally shaped by God and who he is and what he's done. And then this last part is really exciting because it's the outward journey. And uh, we're going to spend this morning's message as part of this little mini-series within this outward journey, which is looking specifically at the book of Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament. And uh, the book of Acts is a really, really good Uh, place to camp out for a few weeks, because the book of Acts has this strategic position within the New Testament. So the book of Acts has this really strategic position, and I tried to think of a good illustration for it, and I came up with this one, which is the book of Acts is like a hinge. So you walk through the doors this morning, and those doors are on hinges. What does a hinge do? It has these two plates, and then there's a hinge pin, and it connects, and it goes from one thing to the next. The book of Acts is like a hinge pin. On one side, you've got the four Gospels. Tell us all about the life of Jesus. And then what comes after the book of Acts is all about Paul's writings. But we don't know how does the life of Jesus and, the life and Paul's writings connect. Well, we learn how they connect in the book of Acts. We learn about what comes right after Jesus' ministry and what leads into Paul's ministry And we learn about that in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the second part of a two-part work within the New Testament. The first part was Luke's Gospel, written by Luke, and Acts, also written by Luke, the same person. And uh, very clearly, the book of Acts is designed to tell us what happened right after Jesus left. What happened right after Jesus left earth. So it's a good place to spend some time because it helps us to understand more deeply what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus And what did Jesus intend for his followers after he had left earth? And what's this thing called the church? And how did it get started? And what does it mean? So that's what we're going to think about a little bit more this morning. 
So one of the things that is important to kind of consider in this outward journey is a principle that we see at work in scriptures, really from the early part of the Old Testament all the way through, which is as Christians, as individuals who have been uh, brought into the family and the people of God, we have received grace, we have received blessings, we have received from God. And one of the great tragedies of the Christian life is that we hoard all of those blessings for ourselves and the people that we love. That we keep all of the good stuff to ourselves. Now Paul is very, very clear in the New Testament that one of the benefits of coming into a new life relationship with God is that there's lots of inheritance. Right? That's, that's good, right? Right? In fact, uh, he's very clear that one of the fundamental differences between a slave and a child is inheritance, right? What's the point of being a child? You get an inheritance, right? That's a fundamental difference, right? Well, an inheritance is great. But one of the things about Christian inheritance is even though we receive it, we're supposed to spend it. We're supposed to get the inheritance out into the world. And so one of the tragedies is, and we see this in the life of Israel in the Old Testament, is that we oftentimes are tempted to just kind of hold on to it for ourselves. We just want to kind of keep it. And the point of this last section of the year is how do we give it away? How do we turn around and how do we give it away? If you are following Jesus in the Gospels, if you are a disciple, you had a front row seat to lots of really amazing things. You would have seen miracles of healing up front. You would have just been right there when Jesus healed blindness. You would have been right there when Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees and he said, these amazing words, and spoke with authority. You would have been right there. And you would have seen the crowds come to Jesus, and you would have been there in the crush of people, and you're like, how are we going to get out of here? And you've got to run for it, and you've got to jump in a boat and escape. You would have been there in all of the craziness that was happening. You would have been there as the ministry of Jesus just explodes into life. You would have been there for all of it. And you would have been really excited One of the fundamental shifts that happens in Mark's gospel is that right in the middle of that gospel, the disciples say to Jesus, you are the Messiah. And after they make that declaration, and Jesus is like, yep, you're right, I am. What happens right after that, the rest of the book of Mark takes a really different turn. So the disciples realize Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah was this Jewish figure He was anticipated in the Old Testament, and he was going to come, and he was going to restore Israel. He was going to restore Israel. It was this great heroic figure, a political champion, a military champion, and he was going to throw off the yoke of the oppressor, and Israel would be restored. So as a disciple, you know Jesus is that guy, right? He's the one that's going to do all this. And especially as all the crowds grew, you would have been like, yeah, it's coming. It's definitely happening. This is great. But kind of think towards the end of Jesus' ministry. The crowds have disappeared. There's been the arrest of Jesus. This trial. And actually, by the very end, it's kind of dangerous to follow Jesus. It wasn't cool to follow Jesus right at the end. And I think as the disciples 
walked with Jesus, and they talked with him, and as they talked with each other, I'll bet that when things were really rolling along, they were starting to say to each other, like, hey, John, uh, Jesus is the Messiah, right? Yep. You know what that means, right? Yep. means Jesus, at some point, is going to storm Jerusalem. He's going to take over, and he's going to make everything right, and he's definitely going to get rid of the Romans. Yes. You know what that means, John? It means you're going to be in charge of something pretty sweet. It means I'm going to be in charge of something pretty sweet. Right? They were ambitious. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know this because one of their moms went to Jesus and said, Hey, <laughs> uh, what are my two sons going to be doing uh, when you get this kingdom of yours set up? So, by the end... The disciples are asking a really deep question, a very important question, which is, how is this all going to end, Jesus? How is this all going to end? Uh, because it seemed like the trend line was really negative. <laughs> Jesus is on the cross, and the disciples run and hide, right? Not exactly the model for following Jesus at that point. And what amazing thing happens then is that Jesus actually is raised from the dead, just like he said he would. So if the disciples didn't really know what was coming beforehand, they surely didn't know what was happening once Jesus was raised from the dead. Right? There's no prior history for that. There's just no grid for this. And that's where Luke's story begins with Jesus and the disciples right at the very end of Jesus' life. And he gives them a really, really specific uh, set of instructions. And uh, the instructions that we read, the words of Jesus in Acts 1 sound really like the Great Commission, Matthew 28. It's pretty much the same account. Where Jesus basically says in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus has some very, very specific instructions. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So that was an ever-increasing geographical region, Jerusalem, ultimately to the ends of the earth. Wow, that seems, huh, how's that going to happen, right? Seems like a big task, Jesus. Uh, we should get cracking on that. We should really get moving on that. So, Jesus says to them, the next piece of instruction is, I want you to go back into Jerusalem and wait. In order to best be equipped for this amazing, life-transforming, earth-shattering development in the ministry of Jesus and the coming kingdom, I want you to go to a room and wait. So I don't know about you, but that's not how I'm wired, right? The waiting is not like how I'm wired, right? So that would seem maybe a little, a little challenging, but they are uh, obedient to Jesus, and they go back to Jerusalem, and they, they wait. And we read that there were about 120 followers of Jesus who were waiting in an upper room, and they're waiting, and they're praying, and they're waiting, and that's all we know that they were doing at that point is praying and waiting. The day of Pentecost arrives, and Pentecost was an Old Testament festival 
also known as the Festival of First Fruits, where people would bring the first fruits of what they had as a way to uh, honor God. And they would come to the temple in Jerusalem and they would make sacrifice and they would bring their first fruits. So Jerusalem is packed. This is one of the major holidays in the Jewish year. People are from all over the world. How do we know that? Because Luke uh, tells us in Acts chapter 2 exactly where everybody was from. There are people from Europe, there are people from Asia, people from Africa, people are from all over. So they have come, and the streets are crazy busy, there's just all this stuff that's happening on the streets and in the temple, and in another part of the city you've got 120 people just waiting, just waiting, just waiting, just waiting, and then eventually something dramatic happens. The wind begins to blow through the place where they're sitting. Tongues that look like fire start to rest on everyone's head. And then they can speak in all of these strange languages as the Spirit enables them. Wow, what is this? Now, I don't know if the disciples really knew what they were waiting for, but this seems like a dramatic incident that's happening to them. Something is happening to them. So if something is happening to them, or even to us today, a new experience of God, what's a really good question to ask? Is this of God? It's a good question to ask. And then the second question is, how would I know? How would I know that this is of God? Well, the uh, disciples reached back into their Old Testament knowledge bank and thought, are there times when God shows up in wind and times when God shows up in fire? And the answer to both of those is yes. For example, in Ezekiel 37, the prophet gets the vision of the valley of dry bones. It's actually the wind of God or the breath of God that comes in and gives life to those bones. Okay, so that's the wind. And then the fire, right? Imagine that you are Moses and you see a burning bush. And actually the way that is written, it's... Not like the bush just like burned up. It was like there's a bush over there and it's burning. Huh, okay, well, I see that a lot. Wow, that bush just keeps on burning. That bush just keeps on burning. That bush is still burning. Maybe I'll go over and see what's happening with that bush that just keeps burning and burning and burning and burning and it's not consumed. I should go check out that bush. And Moses gets close enough, he realizes there's something sacred about this moment. This is holy ground, and he encounters God in a profound way. So that's one instance of where we see God show up as fire. Uh, Later in his life, Moses is leading the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, and God would show up as a pillar of cloud and fire. So they reach back and they say, you know what? We have some knowledge that God shows up in wind and fire, so this is probably uh, okay. It's probably good. So the whole thing is so dramatic, it doesn't stay contained in one room. We know that it pretty quickly spills out into the streets. And what's people's reaction? This is weird, and these people are probably drunk. The thing is, though, even though what they're saying sounds crazy, people understand it. How is it that these backwater people from a small region can speak in my language? Amazing. Amazing. Uh, there's a very interesting thing that happens right before Abraham is called in Genesis 12. In Genesis 11, we have this incident called the Tower of Babel. 
where people could speak the same language and God confused their language. Uh, in the New Testament and Acts, we have people speaking lots of different languages that suddenly could understand one thing in common. And this is a reversal of the curse of Babel so that God can create a new people that are united. So this moment's kind of crazy. Some people are super confused. Some people have false accusations. There's all sorts of stuff going on. It's chaotic. And this moment requires something important. It requires somebody to make sense of it. This crazy chaotic moment requires a leader to step up and to lead the moment. And that person is Peter. So Peter, uh, remember Jesus has promised, you're the rock upon which I build my church. And this is probably the, the biggest kind of initial moment we see Peter become that rock. And he gets up and he says, actually, uh, this moment is not as crazy as it seems. But there's precedent for this. And it's in the book of Joel. So Joel, not one of the prophetic heavy hitters we turn to oftentimes, but in chapter 2 of Joel, one of the minor prophets, there's this passage about the Spirit being poured out on all people on the last days. The day of the Lord. Now the day of the Lord was this Old Testament idea that uh, God would come and would bring justice and righteousness and restoration. So people anticipated the day of the Lord. So that's a good thing. Peter's saying, hey, this fundamental new period of time has already started. We're in it, and it's going to be great, because you all know, if it's the day of the Lord, righteousness and justice is coming. The challenging thing for this, for the Jews, though, is that it was coming for all people. The Spirit is poured out on all flesh. I mean, the Gentiles, too. Are you sure about that? And ultimately, Joel prophesied that there was a day of the Lord where everybody that called on the name of the Lord would be saved. And we see that in Pentecost. So Peter makes the case using Joel. But Peter actually is really skilled because he takes what people know. They're all Jews. They all knew their Old Testament. And he basically just takes the Old Testament and he just goes through it and he just thinks, What's the, what, how am I going to convince this crowd that this is of God? So he starts with Joel, and that's a great start. Jumps into the prophets. And then he goes to part of the wisdom text of the Old Testament. And he goes to... Uh, the example of David, King David. So Peter is laying it on thick here. He's like, look, even David saw this day coming. And you can't argue with David, right? Because he's like one of the main people, right? If David's on on my side with this, then that's just the way it is, right? So he goes through and he kind of shows how David foresaw this day coming. And It's really uh, interesting because Peter is just really skilled at helping make a case for Jesus. He also, along the way, makes a couple of other points to help reinforce his argument. So he uses Joel, he uses David, and then he also says that there is the Lord has come. See, David's passage talked about the Lord that was to follow after David, and this figure was going to be very, very significant and influential. And uh, Peter is saying that this figure, the Lord, has come, and it's Jesus. And how do we know that Jesus is the Lord? Well, we know because he did signs, wonders, miracles, 
And the greatest thing of all, God raised him from the dead. So this person, Jesus, has God's stamp of approval. And you know how you all know that Jesus has God's stamp of approval? Well, the reason you all know is because you were all there. You all saw it. Remember, he's talking to people who, this is right after Jesus has ascended to heaven. And he basically challenges them to say, like, you all saw Jesus. You saw what he did, and you saw that he was approved by God, that God validated Jesus, and Jesus is Lord. He also kind of gets a couple of jabs in there because he said, uh, you know, Jesus was turned over to evil man. Uh, basically who he was talking to. You guys. You guys are part of this. You're mixed up in this. And you're on the wrong side of it. Because God's on one side with Jesus, and you're on the other side, and you were against Jesus not that long ago. So Peter uses the fact that God validated Jesus, and he uses the fact that they were all eyewitnesses to Jesus to make this case. So it's Joel, it's David, it's God has approved Jesus, and it's their own life experience with Jesus. And he just, down the line, convinces them. And what's the response? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. See, Peter uh, bears witness to Jesus. And we see that the conviction of God comes. And where does the conviction of God come from? I think we often think it's us, right? If I can make a compelling enough argument, then conviction is going to come through the sheer force of my will. Uh, This person will be convicted. But actually, we are to be witnesses, and it's the Spirit that brings conviction. We see that when Jesus was describing in great detail the role of the Holy Spirit, uh, where he would say it's this, one of the roles of the Spirit is to bring conviction. And so we are to, to be witnesses. And we see that um, Peter is a witness to who Jesus is. And there's a response that comes. And we see the 3,000 are added and the church is formed. And maybe by now the disciples are figuring out, like, oh, it's the church. The church is the thing that comes after Jesus. The uh, original word for church in Greek language, the New Testament, is ecclesia. You've probably heard that word before, but ecclesia um, has a very particular meaning. It represents a public assembly of citizens of a certain place who had come together for a certain purpose. Well, it's a public assembly of people who had come together for a purpose. Now, often when we preach about the church, we like to throw in the church is not the building, right? Because oftentimes, just in our English language, we just think about church equals a building. We always remind ourselves, no, it's not the building, it's the people. And that's true. Church is the people rather than the building, although in our language we kind of refer to both. But saying the church is the people is almost 
where we need to get to. It's not quite, it's close, but it's not quite there. Because church really is the people, but it's the people when they're called together for a specific purpose. It's not people in general who are in relationship with God. It's people who are called together for a specific purpose. So if you look around the room, this is the church that you're part of, and we're called together for a specific purpose. All right? What is that purpose? Well, the purpose is to be a witness of Jesus Christ in the world. We are, as a church, to be a witness of who Jesus is in the world. Really simple. And we find lots of different ways to communicate that and to witness to who Jesus is. And some of them are pretty complicated. There's apologetics where we explain rationally for the faith, and there's serving people in the name of Jesus. Lots of ways that we can be a witness to Jesus. But for the purposes of this sermon, we just want to be super simple in thinking about what does it mean to be the church. And to be the church is to bear witness to Jesus in the world. It's really simple. That's the purpose, primary purpose we're called together for. You know, in our life, we always are bearing witness to things. That's kind of how we're wired. And you might not think about it in terms of that language, but it happens all the time, right? If you go out and you see a really great movie, that just really, like, oh, this movie's just so good, the chances are you're going to bear witness to someone about that movie. You're, oh, you would love this movie. It's just the style of movie you would like. You've got to go see it. If you find a new restaurant and it's just, yep, hits the spot, it's perfect, you're going to tell someone about it. There's lots of ways we bear witness to things, right? In our life, we're just hardwired, I think, to bear witness to things that are good, to things that are true, to things that are beautiful, to things that are edifying. We're just wired to tell people and to bear witness to the things that are so meaningful in our lives. We just do it naturally. And that's what we're called to do as a church, is to bear witness to Jesus. Because he's good, he's true, he's beautiful, he is the one who shapes our lives. In some ways, it's that simple, that you bear witness to the thing in your life that is most beautiful, most true, most good. Well, what does it mean to be a witness? We've used that, that word. Well, I think about being a witness is you have this kind of unique combination of knowledge and experience about something. Knowledge and experience. So think about if you uh, were called to be a witness uh, we often think about this in terms of, I don't know, like say someone, say you happen to see a car accident or something, right? And you're called, you have to stick around to be a witness, right? We use that word like that. So imagine that you stick around, and a police officer comes to you and says, uh, did you see the accident? Yep. Uh, so you were here? You have an experience of it? Yep. Um, what happened? Yep, I can tell you exactly what happened. This guy was going here, and this other person, and boom, they hit like this, and that's what happened. That witness is a good witness because they have experience and knowledge. Right? Experience and knowledge. But what would happen if the police officer showed up and said to the person, uh, were you here for the accident? Yep, I experienced it. I was here. Great, can you tell me what happened? Nope. <laughs> no, I just, I just couldn't explain it to you. Just, no, it's just weird. Just can't explain it. Well, you're not the best witness because you were there, but you can't tell what happened, right? Yeah. Um, 
But say you are really good on the details. Uh, were you there? Or did you, uh, did you experience the accident? Well, I didn't really experience it as such. My cousin saw it and he told me. Do you know what happened though? Oh yeah, I definitely know what happened. But you weren't there. No, no, I wasn't there myself, no. Again, not the best witness. So as Christians and as a church, as we bear witness to Jesus, what does that mean? And what's the minimum threshold to bear witness? Well, I think Paul actually helps us figure out what the minimum threshold is to bear witness to Jesus. It's really simple. It's knowledge and experience. Do you have knowledge of who Jesus is? Do you have experience of Jesus? And Paul writes to help us think about this in uh, Romans chapter 10. Starting at verse 8, he says, The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Do you believe in your heart? Do you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead? You have both knowledge and experience of Jesus. A little bit later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reminds us of what the gospel is. It's real simple. Uh, Jesus uh, was buried, died, he buried, and uh, raised on the third day, uh, appeared to many, and ascended into heaven. Pretty simple. Because it focuses so clearly on who Jesus is. And so as we go out in mission as the church, as we are to bear witness to Jesus, we are to bear witness to our knowledge of Jesus and our experience of Jesus. And though some of us have years and years and years and years of experience and knowledge of Jesus, some of us maybe don't have quite that much. But it doesn't really matter. Because whatever level or timeline of experience and knowledge you have of Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior, and you believe that in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, and you're able to proclaim that with your mouth, you have enough experience to be a witness. You have enough knowledge to be a witness, right? So we're all in, right? We're all able to do this. We often think about witness is, I got to tell someone about Jesus, and that is, yes, absolutely. But I want to leave you with a couple of other thoughts about what it means to bear witness to Jesus. When you get up in the morning and you think about your day, and you look at everything that's on your calendar, and you have those moments where you think, oh, it's going to be a rough day. I'm not sure I can quite do all this. Well, you have a choice in that moment. And when you choose to turn to God in prayer and say, God, i just not sure about today. I'm not sure I got it. I'm not sure I have the strength, the knowledge, the grace, the discipline, everything I need. I'm not sure I've got it all today. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. I need your patience. In that moment, you are bearing witness to Christ. Because you are tempted to take that on for yourself, the tasks for those days, to say, you know what, the only way these get done is if I step up and I do them. It's really my strength that's going to get this done. 
Now, there's an element of truth to that, right? I mean, you do have to show up and you have to do stuff. But when you consciously turn to God in prayer and say, you know, I'm willing to, and I know I need to show up, and I know I need to go to these meetings, I know I need to go to this place, I know I need to talk to this person, but I'm choosing today, God, to do it with your strength and your wisdom. That's a witness to Jesus. When you pause before you eat a meal and you say, God, this came from you. There were lots of other people involved, but it didn't come from me alone. Didn't come from Myers alone. Didn't come from a farmer alone, right? There's lots of people involved. But it's so tempting to say, you know who provides for me? This guy. And when you stop and consciously pray, you're reminding yourself and you're declaring in a really small way, but you're declaring, you know what? God is the creator and sustainer of all things. And every good gift comes from him. When you worship God, you are proclaiming again and bearing witness to Jesus. You're saying, you know what? There is one Lord of my life, and there's one Lord of everyone's life, and it's Jesus. It's not me. I'm really tempted to make it that it's me. Every day when I wake up, I want my life to be about me. But really, it's much bigger, and it's really about what God is doing in the world. And I want to be part of that story, not just consumed with my own story. And I'm going to switch my perspective through prayer and worship. You're bearing witness, right? And these are patterns of bearing witness that you just build into your life. And yes, there'll be times when that overflows into talking to somebody or serving someone in need in the name of Jesus or other areas. But you bear witness through this steady accumulation over the years and you, you bear witness to who Jesus is in those small moments of life. 